This is High Stakes from Gerard Inc. I'm David Schifrin with Gerard Inc. And this podcast is part of our Backstage Sessions series recorded on day two of the inaugural Healthcare Sessions Conference produced by the Nashville Healthcare Council. Following a panel about the role of retail in healthcare, I spoke with Dr. Kevin Ban, Chief Medical Officer of Walgreens. What struck me about the panel and then the interviews that followed was the acknowledgement that the challenges we face in healthcare are so significant, there's so much work to be done, that there's plenty of room for everyone. Which means that competitors in the retail space and certainly vying for market share can also share a stage and point to each other as good examples of how to drive the work forward, which uh, Dr. Ban did during the panel. Please be sure to subscribe, share, rate, and review the High Stakes Podcast, and check out GerardInc.com and HealthcareCouncil.com to learn more about our work. Dr. Kevin Ban, thanks so much for your time. This is a lot of fun getting to just hang out and talk to people here at Nashville Healthcare Council yeah, Sessions. I think this is probably a pretty good job, huh? This is a great job. It's great. Yeah. And so we just had the opportunity to hear you and a number of other folks talk about the role of retail. Yep. in healthcare and where we're going. And we have spent so much time over the last decade at least talking about consumerism and patients as consumers. And if Amazon can figure us out, why can't my hospital? And it seems like we are at a point where that is happening. And so much of that, I think, is thanks to the role of retail sort of writ large. So I would love to hear you first start off by talking about what you said on stage about how you as somebody who is leading in this space, who has a medical background, is also a dad who is acting as a consumer. What is your perspective now over the last couple of years coming out of the pandemic of, of the patient as a consumer, as families as consumers, uh, and how that's influenced your work? Yeah, the I think what I said on stage was it, it's been like waiting for Godot, and we just keep waiting for this consumerism to, to show up, and yet it never quite gets here. I think that things may be changing as a result of the pandemic. But even more importantly, I've seen real change happen in healthcare when there's some financial incentive. And in some ways, that bothers the inner doctor in me. That's what it would need to be in order to make things change. But it's yeah. what I saw. You're mission-driven. Why It shouldn't be about money, but here we I are. G- I guess I'm naive. I hate to, I'm really serious. I think I'm just naive. And when you go to med school and when you're a physician early days, and I mean in your residency, there's this concept of do the right thing. Mm-hmm. What's the right thing? Say, you know what the right thing is, right? So if I said, David, like, do the right thing, say, well, what is that? Okay. What would you do for your mother, your father, your grandparents, your siblings, your kids? That's the right thing, okay? And that's the way I would say 99% of providers are wired. We're just wired to do the right thing. The problem, the rub, is when you don't have financial incentives that help you achieve the right thing. So what do I see? That might be some interesting backdrop. I'm seeing financial changes that are hitting now the consumers. We pushed risks, risk initially onto providers. That happened through the Pioneer ACO. It was all of these risk-sharing programs that come out for provider systems healthcare systems that really aren't capitalized to take on any of this. Uh, And now we're seeing it happen and we're pushing it on to patients. How? Through high deductible insurances. And then if you have enough money, you have an HSA to pay for it. But that's not always the case. And high deductible insurance sounds all cool in the gang until 
you have to stroke a check for four grand. And then it's a problem. And that's what happened to me last summer with my daughter. And all's good. But I stopped being in that moment a healthcare professional. Uh, and when her pediatrician, someone who trained me parenthetically, said, hey, go across the street to the, to the community hospital to get testing. And there, it was complex testing to a certain extent. But some of it was simple testing. The bill was huge. And I think that that could have happened at e equal quality and for much less money making the value high. Yeah. Okay. When something like that happens to you, you get fooled once, but you don't get fooled twice. And so I have, much to the chagrin of my wife, who's Italian, and I don't mean kind of Italian, I mean born and raised in Florence, <laughs> Italy, where she's like, there can no, be no negotiation when it pertains to our children's health. I now am pushing back and saying, why are we doing that? Why are we doing that there? What is that going to cost? And I think eventually that's what will happen. And that's when consumerism really settles in. And it's not because of do the right thing. It's because financially it'll make sense for people to do that. So how do you take that into your work and thinking about, I mean, you, you said you were in a fortunate position where you could, you could write that check that first time. Many people can't, as you talked about, and, and I can't remember what the exact number is, but something like more than 50% of Americans don't have, is it $400 to cover an emergency yeah, I think expense? it's just shy of 50%. Just shy of 50%. If asked to write a check for $400 of more, would have to borrow money okay. in order to do it. I think that's where it comes down to. So you're exactly right. And mine was a multiple of about 10 of that. And so between the financial strain and just the fact that we aren't educated in how to navigate this insanely complex medical system. We have neighbors who are struggling to pursue care, asking the right questions, paying for it when they're able to... So, so how do you Put into indebtedness and at, at an alarming rate because of healthcare bills. At a shocking right. rate. Yeah. At a shocking rate. When that person is looking for care, how do you show up for them and say, we're here, we've got pharmacy, we've got urgent care we're ready for you and we're going to help. I don't know if, if, if you would use the terminology, the front door, but what is your role and how do you think about that and helping to navigate and take some of that pressure and burden off of people? All right. Well, first but, of all, as you're saying this, I, I, I'm with you. I 100% get this. And it makes me think, and forgive me if this is just random brain thinking, but let's go. Yeah. Remember the first time like you opened your iPhone and there weren't even instructions? I, I don't know if you remember that time. I, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you didn't need them. It was so intuitive. It made so much sense that once you turned the darn thing on, it was like smooth sailing. Here's the deeper criticism I'm going to make. Like, why do we even need anyone to help us navigate through our healthcare system? That's craziness. And I'll tell you, early on in my career, I led a project in Tuscany on behalf of Harvard Medical uh, International. And I learned so much from that experience by working in socialized medicine, which we have demonized. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that people in Italy, and we will oftentimes talk about how there's a problem with access to care, and which I never saw, quite honestly. They knew how to use the system. Like, they didn't need navigators, right? But we do, which says something about our healthcare system. And it says something about how we have to somehow simplify something that's become nearly impossible to navigate. Now, can we help people do that? That's the vision. But let's never forget that this is a workaround, okay? I just want to call that out. 
that we that having a navigator is a workaround. But unfortunately, that is the state of our healthcare system. And we we should and I think could do better. Yes, we can be that front door to access to care. Let's talk about access to care for a second. Kaiser Family Foundation came out with some really interesting stats at the end of 22, where they said that there were over 8,000 medically underserved areas. And in those medically underserved areas where there's primary care shortage, we failed to deliver even 50% of the care that was necessary. That impacted nearly 100 million Americans, so about 30% of our population. And in order to right-size that, we would need somewhere over 16,000, 17,000 new providers. We have no line of sight for that. Yeah. Okay. So where I am is we must rethink the resources that we have in our system, and we must rethink how we access and deliver care. In some way, and again, I'm going to come back to the piece that I mentioned earlier. I'm going to put my money, excuse sort of the pun here, on a financial model that incents providers' healthcare systems to want to work with retailers, which we don't have right now, okay? But if there, there was some sort of way that we could work together synergistically and create a we-do-you-do do type of mentality, hey, we'll do this. We'll do this exceptionally well. We'll be sure that we're not siloed in the care that we're providing and that we're communicating. By the way, that was a reference to technology, which is not a technical problem, but a, a political one. Yeah, okay? yep. And, and that will allow you to focus on other more complex actions for people who need to figure out how to gain better health. So that's the vision, and that's where we're headed. But I have to say, it's wonky, right? Like, it's not easy. And new care paradigms require not only that people consider that they might do that, but it also considers that the establishment, which fights very hard to resist change, will accept that. I'm very interested in change management, how you communicate, how you bring people along for, not bring them along for the ride, right? Because they're not right. You don't want them riding along. You want them active participants in the change. And as you're creating this new model and you're pushing forward with your peers and your competitors and the folks within on your team, how do you talk about the work so that you're getting everybody to understand their role and, and to drive that mm -hmm. change? And you just mentioned the the traditional system, which holds true anywhere, right? There's just we get we become sclerotic. It's hard to change, it's hard to turn the big ship, whatever. How do you talk about why, the work? why do people want to work with me and try to solve this problem? Is that the <laughs> is the might that be a some sure? I mean, it, yeah, how do you get people excited to, to okay. do this hard stuff? No, I love this question. And I'll tell you that I'm going to start at high level and kind of work my way That's down. That's great. I build horizontal relationships exclusively. Okay. I do not build vertical relationships. In fact, my advice would be that you one ought never build vertical relationships. The moment you have hierarchy in your relationships where one person is more important than the other, it's broken. I build horizontal rela relationships with people. I've done that throughout the entirety of my career. Oftentimes, people are like, whoa, pause. What do you mean? The CEO of the company? And that, Okay, you're talking about something different. Now, my responsibilities are different than the responsibilities of the CEO, but they are no less important. When I was the CMO of a hospital, I got together with the janitorial staff. 
we were getting into value-based care contracts, and I wanted everyone to feel like they were a part of the success of the hospital. And I started to share infection rates with them. And they now I could never prove that a cleaner room and bathroom correlated with better infection outcomes. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm putting my hands. The Italians had this saying. I'm putting my hands out in front of me. Okay, but what I did say to them is. I know that when you do a really good job, that you contribute to the well-being of our patients. And I think that put a little bit of pep in their step, quite honestly. Horizontal relationship. Yes, I'm the CMO of the hospital. Yes, you're on the janitorial staff, but we need to work together. These problems are worth solving. And when I'm recruiting people, I try to approach it from that perspective, which is we are fellow journeymen here. We are co-conspirators in trying to disrupt this system that isn't delivering them the way that any of us want. And so when you join me, we join together to work on something that's worthy. That's great. Last question, and it is an admittedly cliche question, but we're here, we're at sessions. There's so much energy. There's a lot of great people here. What are you excited about right now? What's got you fired up? Um, I was about to say, I like change. It it feels like change is imminent. We just can't go down this path. We just can't keep going. We we can't. Like, this can't go on. We're already spending stupid amounts of money, and and somehow this blows up. And so it feels from crisis comes opportunity, and there just might be tons of opportunity. Now, that means change. My wife constantly reminds me that I actually don't care for change that much, or at least (laughs) I like the change that I can control. But I do feel strongly like, from crisis comes opportunity. So, so bring it. Kevin Van, thanks for your time. It was an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate your insight on stage and now backstage. Thank you. 